All right, how's everyone doing? For those of you who are new to the church, my name is Hannibal, and we want to welcome you all. We are so glad that you are here. And if you don't know anything about our church, this is the way we summarize who we are and why we exist. We are a congregation that continues to desire uh, and are learning how to love God, love one another, love our neighbors, and love the nations as much as we can. And one of the ways in which we grow into these four loves is by walking, by grabbing books of the Bible and walking through those uh, together, looking at every verse and looking at every word as much as we can and learning, um, and learning from what the Scripture says. And the text that we're looking at today, the meditating on, which comes from Matthew 15, as you just read, um, answers one important question, answers the question of what does it mean to have great faith? What does it mean not not just to have faith in general terms, but to have great faith? And I want to just start, I think it's important that we understand that when the Bible is going to use the term great faith, that does not mean perfect faith. That does not mean that there's someone in this room that has and can have perfect faith because that doesn't exist. That only would exist when Jesus comes back. Actually, I would argue also that when the Bible talks about great faith, it's not talking about flawless faith or sinless faith, meaning that you never doubt and you never had questions. That's a, if that's you, you are deceiving yourself. That doesn't exist just yet. That would happen when Jesus returns and we get to see everything and understand everything the way we're supposed to. And yet, the Bible does make an emphasis that there's a difference between having faith and having great faith. So that's the topic today. I'm going to talk, these are my two points for today. We're going to talk about great faith and a great Savior. Now, please don't be deceived. Two points does not mean shorter sermon. <laughs> if anything, it might be longer. All right, let's go with point number one. Great faith. In the context of the text, if you have been walking with us, you may remember that Jesus just finished a conversation with the religious leaders. A group of people that for some reason, because of their knowledge and experience and their position or whatever it is, they feel and they think that they have it all together. They feel and they think that they don't need help. They feel and they think that they're morally superior to everybody else. And Jesus confronts them and confronts them really hard. And what is interesting that after Jesus confronts them, nothing happens. Like, they don't respond to Jesus. There's no evidences of repentance. There's no evidences of brokenness. There's no evidence that they responded in faith at all. That's how the verse 20, the section from last week, finished. And you got to wonder, what happened? And I think that's important to take into consideration, at least, because the text we're looking at today, Jesus is going to grab another person. There's going to be an interaction with another person. And it's almost like if Matthew is putting these two encounters back to back for a reason. On one end, we're going to see that the religious, we saw last week that the religious leaders, they claim to have faith, but their faith is terrible. And here, on the other end, we have an encounter with a woman that nobody would expect her to be a woman of great faith. So I find it ironic, actually, the way Matthew put these two verses, these two narratives together. I think that there's an intentionality. 
The people that had it all together had nothing, and the people that had nothing, apparently they have it all together in a sense. Now, to, to show you the distinction between these two, between this woman that we're going to look at today and the religious leaders, I want you to hear how is it that this group of people, these religious leaders, how is it that they started their devotional time every day when they got up? Because I think it's going to give perspective on why this other encounter is so important. So these men, all men, there's something wrong with men. These men, they get up in the morning and they say something like this. Thank God, or thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. By the way, you should be offended by that because you're a Gentile. Thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Don't you love these people? This is how they get up in the morning. That's how they establish their relationship with the Lord before living their lives. And Jesus is about to turn all that stuff upside down. And this is where we start with verse 21. It says that Jesus finished, finished that conversation. And he's living to a place. And Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre, of Tyre or Tyre and Sidon. Now, that's an important detail. Because those two cities are outside the Jew territory. They're Gentile cities. And I find that interesting because about 95% of Jesus' ministry, maybe more of Jesus' ministry, was uh, dedicated and it, uh, and it was within the Jewish territory, meaning that Jesus did very little ministry to the Gentiles. And there is a reason for that. And you will get, we will get back to that later on. So I want you to see that you cannot miss that there's an intentionality in the way Jesus is doing this. He comes from a religious back, he comes from a religious group, and he moves into this Gentile world. And the first person he meets there in verse 22 is a Canaanite woman from that vicinity that came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, the one phrase that I'm going to repeat 20,000 times today is, she is a Gentile and a woman. And Jesus meets this Gentile and a woman that is repeatedly crying out to Jesus. And we know that she is repeatedly crying out to Jesus because that word is in the imperfect tense, meaning that she just won't stop. And I find it interesting because she is approaching Jesus in this way, but there are certain things that she knows about Jesus that the, 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 the religious leaders didn't know. So, for example, we know that she believed that Jesus was the, the, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Why? Because she calls him Lord and the son of David. She knows that he's got royalty and he knows that he's got authority, right? But what I want you to see is that the way she approaches Jesus even though she's crying out repeatedly, is nothing like the way the religious leaders approach Jesus. She comes to Jesus asking for his mercy. And we're going to talk about that later on, so keep that thought. But she has no sense of superiority or you got to help me or you must help me. No, 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 no. 
she's approaching Jesus with a humble heart, knowing that she does not deserve anything. Now, why is she so desperate? What the text tells you. That she's desperate because her daughter, most likely like a young adult, she's demon-possessed and is suffering terribly. Now, if you're a parent, you know what that feels like. If you're a parent and your child is struggling, you know what that feels like. This woman is so desperate, so desperate that she's willing to break all cultural barriers. And I'm going to give you three at least. She's a Gentile approaching a Jew. That should never happen. Not in that context and at that time. Number two, she is a Gentile woman approaching a man. That should never happen. Not in that context, not at that time. And she's a gentle woman approaching a religious leader. And that would never, ever, 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 <laughs> ever, ever happen. I hope you understand that that should never happen. <laughs> but she's so desperate. She's so desperate that she's willing to break all these things and cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this story is super interesting. And if you read it before, before you probably have 20,000 questions here. Because if you know anything from the Gospel of Matthew, for example, or if you know anything from the Gospels and the way Jesus behaves and how Jesus interacts, you will notice that Jesus never, ever, ever turned anybody down, ever. And that Jesus would always, 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 always will help people in need. And that Jesus usually will go beyond what people needed and will give what people actually, not, not just what people wanted, but what people needed. So you would expect that this woman in desperation, in desperation that she's struggling with everything she has, you would expect that Jesus responds to her automatically. But that's not what happened. Look at what it says in verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. How many of you guys find that weird? How many, how many of you guys find that verse weird? Please raise your hand. How many of you guys just don't care about anything in life? <laughs> you know, I find it weird because this is not the way Jesus responds. And I find it even more weird the way the disciples respond. You know what they're saying? This woman is so annoying. Could you please send her away? Like, who would say that? They have been walking around with Jesus by this time most likely like at least a year and a half or two. They have seen the miracles of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. They have been seeing everything that Jesus does for people. Why would, in what world would they think Jesus, it's okay to say to Jesus, get rid of this annoying woman. It's all right if her child died, let her go. There's something weird here. Why is Jesus responding that way? Why are the disciples responding this way? Now, you would think, well, well, that, that was awful. So maybe Jesus changed his mind. 
Maybe Jesus now feels something and he's going to help her, but that is not what happens in the text. Look at what it says in verse 24. He looks at the woman and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What? How many of you guys find that offensive? Raise your hand. How many of you guys don't care about life at all? <laughs> I want you to keep the word only in your head because it's a significant statement there. You can't forget it. And you would say after this, well, finally Jesus got it. You know, he was rude for a second, but now he's going to get better. But that's not what happened. Verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Her level of desperation is so and so high that even after the disciples says, send her away, that after Jesus says, listen, I'm not here to save you, quote unquote, I'll come back to that later. It's almost, you would think that this lady understands and she will walk away. But the text says that she went extra strong. She knelt before him and cried out, the, the more Lord help me. If you want to understand why she's doing all of this, you really need to understand what it means to be desperate. Do you know what it means to be desperate? See, you're not going to be able to understand this lady unless you answer that question. And I'm going to help you with it. I'm going to help you understand why is it that a mother is humbling herself that way for the sake of her child. So a few years ago, I was... Um, I went to hear this lecture at, uh, uh, given by one of my, a friend of mine, a professor from Wheaton College, and he's giving a lecture on immigration. And he's trying to explain why is it that there are so many immigrants coming from Central America to the United States. So in his research project, project he interviewed a bunch of people, and he, he shares with us the interview that he did to one lady. And this lady says that her situation in Central America was so awful, so terrible, that the tendency for her and many women was to take their kids, give it to some relatives, and then do this journey into the United States for months and months, hoping that one day they will make it into the, the United States and be able to help their family. Now listen up. This is the thing that triggered everything else for me. She said that every single one of those women, before departure, not only they have to leave the kids behind, but they take birth control pills before leaving. I hope you know why. And I'm sitting there, and I think, how desperate. Do you have to be? How awful your life must be that you have to leave your kids behind, hoping to get a better future, knowing that you might get raped. That's desperation. And that's what this lady is going through. 
That's why you could tell why is it that she does not stop. Now you look at the story, and you think, well, now Jesus got it. Now he's going to listen to her and perform the miracle. But that's not what happened. Look what it says in verse 25. I'm sorry, 26. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. How many of you guys are bothered by that verse? Now we are all on the same page. Now, secular people take this, modern people take this, and you say, you see, this is why I don't like Jesus. He's a misogynist. He's racist too. See, it's because of verses like this that I cannot believe in Jesus. And all kinds of people get offended by this verse. And by these verses and by Jesus' response. And they use this as an excuse and why not to believe. You know what I find interesting in this text? That even though we all get offended by it and everyone gets offended by it, the, the one person that is not offended by this is the woman in the story. You got to ask the question, why? Look at how she responds in verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord. Notice the word Lord, respect. She knows who she's talking to. Yes, it is Lord. I agree with you. Even though the dogs eat the crumbs from, um, that fall from, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I agree with you, Jesus. You shouldn't give the dogs the food that belongs to the children. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. Why is this lady so resilient? Why is it that she's not offended by what Jesus said? See, because this lady, a Gentile woman, has better theology than the religious leaders and even the disciples, at least at this moment. This lady has better understanding of who God is and how he works than the religious leaders and even the disciples at this moment. And I want to show you four things that she knows about Jesus. Ready? You got to say ready. Your participation is awful today, people. Number one, she knows and trusts Jesus' heart. You know, this is super interesting. She starts the conversation crying out for mercy. And then she has this crazy conversation with Jesus, and she does not back down. Do you know why? Because she knows that God, Jesus, is a God of mercy. She is not determining this conversation and the value of this conversation separated from what she knows already about Jesus' heart. 
So regardless of whether she understands what's happening here or not, she is not divorcing what's happening here from the heart of the person that the words are coming up from. She knows Jesus' heart. She knows that he's a God of mercy. Regardless of what he's saying or doing here, she still knows that he's a God of mercy. Number two, she knows and trusts Jesus' plans. You know, in verse 34, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I, I, call you to, I told you to remember the word only. In verse 26, he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Why is it that this lady is not offended? Well, because she understands something that the religious leaders didn't understand and that the, the disciples didn't understand, that there is an order of revelation and salvation in the scriptures. She understands something about the, the redemption plan that none of these two groups understand. She understands that, for example, in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the nations. She understands that the Lord chose the Israelites to be the first ones to taste the grace of God so they can extend it to the rest of the world. This is exactly what we see in the, in, in, in the book of Acts. This is a distinction between Peter and Paul. One is reaching the Jews and the other one is reaching the Gentiles. She has no issue understanding that in God's economy, there was a pattern. You know why this is so amazing? Because she's approaching Jesus and saying, I know all of that. I want to be included now. I want your grace now. What you promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I want it now. Great theology. She's not appealing to him for something that he did not promise. He's crying out for the very thing that God had already promised. See, this lady knows Jesus' heart. She knows Jesus' plans. And she also knows how to interpret Jesus' words. Listen, I don't care how much you love dogs, which in this country, we worship dogs. Amen. <laughs> Every time I send my dog to the groom man, 70 bucks, I might be worshiping that thing. <laughs> so the interesting thing, though, is that even if people call you dog in a nice way, they're still offensive. Right? Like someone calls you useless. It doesn't matter if they make it sound nice. That's still offensive. Ah, uh, you're so useless. <laughs> How about if I tell you the word dog in that text? It's offensive. So back in those days, in that context, in that time, there's two positions. There's actually two interpretations on what the word dogs mean. One would be kind of the prejudiced, racist way in which the Jews would talk about the rest of Gentiles. Those were the dogs. Was Jesus using that term? And then the other way is to say, well, no, it's a dog. It's more like a puppy. It's the one that we have at home. But it's still offensive. Because in God's plan, in God's word, in God's mind, humans are not as valuable as animals. They're more valuable than animals. Put it that way. What I want you to see, though, 
Is that part of the reason why this lady is not offended by this? Is because she's doing the right interpretation. She knows that Jesus is not using the Jew term. And she knows that Jesus is not using the term as a puppy or a dog at home. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. This lady on the spot understands that Jesus is using all of this as an illustration, as a metaphor, or as a parable. She knows that Jesus is not calling her a dog and that the Israelites are her, his children. She knows that he's using this as a metaphor to say there is an order here. There is a pattern. I came here for the Israelites and eventually that will get to you. So this lady's great theology, she knows Jesus' hearts, Jesus' um, plans, Jesus' words. And lastly, more important than everything else, she knows that she does not deserve anything from God. And that's why she uses the term mercy. Listen, she knows that even though she's crying out for her daughter, that even though probably most likely she has been a good mom, most likely she's doing everything good, and yet she knows that she deserves nothing from God. Notice that there's no sense of entitlement or you have to help me or I deserve this or this is not fair, I have been good. No, no, no. She cries out to the Lord and says, please, give me what I don't deserve. Have mercy on me. Give me what I don't deserve. Tim Keller puts it this way. She is not coming to Jesus on the basis of her goodness, but on the basis of his goodness. You remember that little prayer? Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Look at what Jesus says to this lady, like a smack in the face to the religious leaders. Verse 28. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed on the spot. Great faith. The religious leaders are not there, you know. What would have been their reaction if they were there? What? This dog? Great faith? The disciples are like, great faith? And Jesus uses a Gentile woman as an example of great faith. So we got to do some application here. Because I think that we struggle with our faith precisely because sometimes our theology is a little bit off. And maybe, just maybe, we need to learn from this lady what it means to have great faith. So let's talk about the first one. I think that sometimes we struggle with our faith 
because we don't trust the heart of Jesus. See, this is what she did. She didn't have a picture of a, of a fragmented Jesus. She didn't have a picture of a Jesus that she likes here and these things that I don't like here. She knows that Jesus is one God, one person, that we don't get to divorce one attribute of Jesus from other attributes of Jesus, that we don't get to like some things of Jesus and other things we just don't like. Part of our struggle is because we create this fragmented Jesus. So, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. We struggle with the love of God and the holiness of God. Many people love the love of God, but we don't like the fact that God says that you got to be holy and righteous as much as you can. Like if God can be divided, like if Jesus can be divorced. Actually, I want to argue that you don't have a, a loving God unless you have a holy God. You know why? Because if God is loving, why would he be okay with you ruining your life and the life of the people you love? That's unheard of. The love of God, the holiness of God cannot be separated. We struggle with the same thing with suffering. Why would a good God divorce? Why would a good God bring this suffering upon me? Like if God can be divorced from his sovereignty, like if we can divorce his sovereignty from his goodness. Everything that the Lord brings, everything that the Lord allows, as much as he hurts, it comes from a good God. That's the same thing that we have with the doctrine. Oh, man, we love some doctrines here from God. But these ones? Oh, not so much. I love the fact that God is a God of love and mercy and patience and grace. But I don't like the fact that God is a God that tells me what to do with my money and with my body. You don't get to do that. You don't get a fragmented Jesus. That's something that we must learn from this woman. We also must learn from this woman what it means to trust God's plans. Listen, she knew the redemption story. She knew that there was a pattern. She just wanted that to go quicker, that's all. And I think that sometimes you and I struggle with our faith because our plans don't match God's plans or God's plans don't match my plan. Or God's timing does not match my timing. That's why I love this phrase from uh, John Newton. He says, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. You know what that means? That whatever the Lord gives you is because you need it. And if he doesn't give it to you, you did it. As much as you think that that was a mistake, in God's sovereignty, he gives you what you need. And he doesn't give you what you don't need. How about Jesus' words? One of the beautiful things that this lady does is she knows how to interpret God's word. How about if I tell you that we struggle in our faith when we don't know how to interpret God's words? See, there's a phrase going around in modern days that was said by St. Augustine. He says, in essentials, unity 
in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And that's a beautiful term. He says, there are things that are essentials that we should all believe. There are things that are non-essentials that we could have freedom in what we believe. But even in what we believe or not, we should exercise charity to one another, patience to one another, kindness to one another. You know what the problem is nowadays for modern-day Christianity? We don't even know what the essentials are. See, the religious leader says everything is essential. And the progressive says nothing is essential. And this is why, one of the reasons why as a church we keep telling you, you must know the word. How else are you going to know what's essential and what is not? Number four, we can learn from this lady about the mercy of Jesus. Once again, this lady approaches Jesus knowing that as good as she has been, at the end of the day, she does not deserve anything from God. It's all grace at the end of the day. And I believe that we live in a culture and in a time in which believing that is so hard. You know why? Because the message we hear the most is that you deserve everything. That you are entitled to live your life however you want to. That you are entitled to live out your dreams. That you are entitled to live out your desires. And that you are awesome and fantastic and beautiful and perfect. This is why we struggle with the mercy of God. It's because we are bought into this idea that the culture says that we struggle with racism and prejudice because we think that some people are more worthy than others. This is part of the reason why we struggle with being merciful toward others because we think that some people don't deserve our mercy. This is part of the reason why we struggle struggle with um, asking for forgiveness. Because we believe that some people don't deserve that or repent. Notice that part of the reason why we struggle with our faith is because we don't believe, truly believe, truly, or apply at least these things that this lady believes. The heart of Jesus, the plans of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And the mercy of Jesus, did you know that everything you are and everything you have is only because of the mercy of God? You are the way you are because of the mercy of God. You have the things you have because of the mercy of God. You got the work you have because of the mercy of God. You got the talents you have because of the mercy of God. You got the freedom in this country you have because of the mercy of God. Because if God would have wanted differently, you would have been born in another part of the world and you would have a different perspective of life. Everything we are and everything we have is only because of the mercy of God. No one gets to boast about anything in the Christian life. Nothing to brag about. That's not true, Hannibal. I work hard for what I have. Who gave you that talent? Can you see why this woman not only teaches good theology to the religious leaders, to the disciples, but also to us? So the question is, how can we actually live this out? Can we be people like this? And I would say, yeah, of course, you got this lady in the story. 
It is possible to do this. The only thing, though, is that we need to learn to see Jesus the way she did. Therefore, point number two, we need a great Savior. Now, I'm going to give you three texts. And I'm going to read them quick, and I want you to just, just follow the train of thought. In verse 22, it says that a Canaanite woman cried out to the Lord and said, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's how the text starts with the word mercy. In verse 30, it says, and second part of verse 15, it says that the great crowd came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and he healed them. Pay attention to that. And then at the end of the text, it says that Jesus says to the disciple, I, disciples, I have compassion for these people. For they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry. And if you notice, the word mercy and compassion are the book ends of the story. It tells you that Jesus is a Jesus of mercy and a Jesus of compassion at the same time. And even though these two words seem the same, they are different. The word mercy, it tells you that this is Jesus' attitude toward the broken, to the disadvantaged. It's the attitude of his heart, but the word compassion says that not only he feels these things for the people that are in need, but that he's willing to do something for them. When you look at, it, when you look at the Gospels, for example, you see that Jesus' heart was for the disadvantaged by family circumstances, that's why he cared for the widow and the orphans. You notice that Jesus' heart is for the disadvantaged by geography. That's why he loved the strangers. If you notice, Jesus' heart was uh, for the disadvantaged by occupation or social choices, like sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. You can see that Jesus' heart is for the disadvantaged by physical disability, like the blind and the lame. You can see that Jesus' heart is for the disadvantaged by diseased, by, by sickness, like the lepers. You can see that Jesus' heart is, is for the disadvantaged because of their age, like children, or gender, like women. You can see that Jesus' heart is for the disadvantaged because of their religion or ethnicity. And that's why he elevates the Samaritans so much. And you know why that's so important? Because he tells you that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mercy of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ is for everyone. That it doesn't matter what you have done, where you have lived, where you come from, or your history... The mercy of God is for you. Actually, the word mercy means that his heart goes out toward us. If you're a parent, you know what that is. Because there's something about being broken that Jesus is attracted to. Listen, I have two daughters and I love them both, and I think they behave okay. But when one of them is struggling, my heart goes out to them the most. You know why? Because they're struggling. See, you were the widow. And you were the orphan. And you were the sinner. And you were the stranger. And you were the sick. And you were the lame. And you were the rejected. And you don't deserve God's mercy. And I don't deserve God's mercy. And yet, his heart goes out to us. How do we know? Because that's why he went to the cross. 
This is why he went to the cross. He knows that our Jesus, we know that our Jesus is a God of mercy and a God of compassion because he went out to the cross. Why wouldn't I trust God, Jesus' words, if he says that he would die for me and he did? Why wouldn't I trust God, Jesus' plans if he says that he would die and resurrect for me and he did? Why wouldn't I trust his promises if he went to the cross and died for me and he did? Why wouldn't I trust his mercy when he goes to the cross, takes the sin I deserve, and gives me what I don't deserve? See, we got something much better than what this lady had. She did not have the cross just yet, but we do. That's why this celebration is for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ already. If that is your case, I want to invite you to participate. We're going to do a little bit of a self-examination right now. But before we do that, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, just know that this is not the right time for you to participate in this. It's actually an invitation for you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ so you can participate. Before we do that, though, the Bible calls us to examine our hearts. And I would like you to see in your heart if you truly trust the heart of Jesus, the plans of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and the mercy of Jesus. See if it's if in the way you have been living, you look more like the religious leaders and the disciples or like the Gentile woman. And then repent. And then we will participate. Take a few seconds there. I'm going to ask you to now take your cup and remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And this is what the scripture says. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had broken, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now I'm going to ask you to remove the other side of the cup where you find the juice. And the scripture says that in the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate.
Lord, there are, there's so much to learn from someone like the Canaanite woman. Lord, we recognize that the only way we turn our faith into great faith is not by the things we do, but by learning to believe more and more and the things that this woman believed. That you are trustworthy. That your heart is trustworthy. That your plans are trustworthy. That your words are trustworthy. And that your mercy is secure. And your compassion never goes away. And we know that because you went to the cross. Lord, just as these elements enter into our body, may the gospel of Jesus Christ enter into our hearts. And stay there. Because no one can be proud at the foot of the cross. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Churches.